I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm delighted to be joined today by Shashank Joshi, the defence editor of The Economist, and somebody who's been tracking both the war in Ukraine as it unfolded, but also the build-up to the war. And he was somebody who accurately called Putin's intentions at that time. Shash, welcome. Arthur, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's very good to be on. So, Shash... um, this is a war that has rumbled on uh, in ways that people have not expected. The, the initial expectation that the Russians would roll into Kiev, uh, then the Russians switching to the Donbass. And perhaps at the beginning of that, there seemed to be a bit of optimism, uh, particularly in, in certain bulletins uh, here in the West, that the, the Russian offensive in the Donbass was also failing. But now it... it it seems harder to say that. So what's your take on where we're at? We're in, in the middle of June now. Uh, wh- where are we in this conflict? You're absolutely right. I think there was this sense, a slightly heady sense a few weeks ago that, hang on, the Ukrainians are winning. They yeah. had pushed the Russians back in Kharkiv. And of course, I should say here, if you if you haven't got a map up, you know, for listeners, maybe maybe a map would be helpful given that difficult to keep track of all these things. They pushed them almost all the way back over the border up there in, in Kharkiv. Yeah. They lost ground in Severodonetsk, which is this this uh, town at the eastern edge of a Ukrainian bulge or salient that's now become the focus of fighting as we speak. Um, and, and they then counterattacked and sort of took back land from there as well. Uh, and they, they counterattacked in the south, very far away from Donbass in Kherson, which is also occupied by the Russians. So there was this sense, hang on, are the Ukrainians winning here? Could the Russian army collapse? There was even this sort of slightly anxiety, wasn't there, about what if the Russians get pushed back over the border everywhere? What if they get pushed into Crimea? Is there a risk of escalation here? And I think we've gone back to a more cautious position now. There's a, there's a more sense of gloom around this. Are the Ukrainians losing? I think we've got to keep this in perspective. Russia, as we speak, is making substantial tactical successes. They've basically controlled Severodonetsk. Uh, they are going to be able to push west towards these quite important industrial towns, yeah. Slovyansk, Kramatorsk. If they take those, which I, which I think is unlikely, by the way, we can come back to that, then they could claim to have taken most of Donbass or at least most of the cities and towns in Donbass, which they said at the very beginning was their stated aim, even if it wasn't their real aim. Um, but at the end of the day, I think tactical successes aren't the be-all and end-all. And what we're seeing is a, a Ukrainian army that's exhausted, but a Russian army that's also absolutely spent. And I don't think it has the the manpower, the equipment, the the sense of uh, you know energy and, 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 and dynamic force that armies need to sweep through Donbass, even if they do make more tactical gains here and there in the next few weeks. The really big question is... 
um, the longer term prospects in this war. And, and, and once both sides get exhausted at the end of this summer, there'll have to be a pause. That what will decide this war is not that pause. It's what happens after that pause. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I um, uh, completely share that analysis. It, it, it seems that both sides are grinding to a halt. Um, and then the question does arise, what comes next? Because the economic crisis facing Europe around uh, rocketing energy prices uh, and Europe's decision to move away from Russian energy, albeit a decision it has yet to enact fully, that will really start to bite, as we all know, uh, in, in the sort of last quarter of this year. So what we're going to be seeing is a, a point where two armies have ground to a standstill, where the cost for Western Europe of supporting the Ukrainians starts to increase significantly. And a problem for Ukraine, it would seem to me, which is that uh, it, as a country, cannot function for as long as Russia sees that it has the right to occasionally drop rockets on Kyiv or Lviv, let alone continue active warfare back on, on that eastern frontier. I think that's right. You know, someone commented to me on Twitter that this they said this was a terrible time in a war when the old army dies before the new one emerges, and they compared it to the British Expeditionary Force in the winter of 1914. I thought that was a rather right. evocative yeah. comparison. Um, and I think to broaden out what you say, Arthur, there's two questions, big questions for me, which are sort of the key questions to answer. One of them is, will Russia, will Vladimir Putin mobilize? Will he call up conscripts? Will he will he call up reservists? Will he declare national mobilization, which he has been unwilling to do so far, because of course, this is portrayed as a special military operation, a very limited thing. Because he needs to, if he needs the manpower to really mount a major offensive uh, in round round two or round three, depending on how you slice it up. The second question, which connects to what you said, is, um, is the West willing to underwrite a long war for Ukraine? Is it willing to underwrite a major Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, over a period, uh, not just of months, possibly of years? And I thought it was really interesting to hear Emmanuel Macron talk about this earlier this week. Uh, I think it was Monday, the 13th of June, for those looking backwards, yeah. where he talked about the need for Europe to think about a war economy. Mm. Um talked about the need to sort of really think about this in defence industrial terms, because all of the factors you mentioned, right, the economy, the sense of inflation, the energy shock, war weariness that results as, as, a, as, a, as a consequence of that, including in the United States, as the midterms approach, of course. But also, even if the political will is there, um, are the material factors there. We are running low of our own stocks of some yeah. of the things we're giving Ukraine. Uh, particularly things like anti-tank weapons, munitions. We've run completely out of Soviet caliber ammunition, the stuff that goes into Ukraine's pre-existing system. So there's, there's, there's really the big question is, can we sustain not just our political unity, but actually scrape together the resources to keep Ukraine in this fight and to underwrite its campaign to take back territory? Um, that's, that's really what's going to define the long-term future of this conflict. Yeah. And on the Russian side, I think a lot of people have been very surprised at how ineffective the Russian military has been. I know that you've recently been doing some work looking at Russia's reliance on tanks, and it contributes to a long-running debate in military circles about whether tanks are really any use at all. Um, what, what's your current assessment on that question? It's such an interesting question because I've been trying to answer the question of, is the Russian army crap, or is it a decent army that just was given crap orders? Right. And that 
in turn informs that question of if we see, you know, they've lost they've lost enormous amounts of tanks, right? I think the yeah. current count uh, on open source terms is over seven hundred. Uh, about half of which have been destroyed. A few hundred have been have been abandoned. Um, I worked it out this morning. You know, I sat there and I I, I, I opened up my copy of the military balance. This book mm. published by the think tank IISS, and I, I counted it up, and that's more than the combined tank fleets of Britain. France and Germany. Wow! So, so this is Europe's, an astonishing. Europe's three biggest military powers added together, and and it's a oh big yeah, number. yeah. This is a yeah. total bon, bonfire of the tanks, right? And they're pulling yeah. out old T sixty twos built, you know, from the nineteen sixties into action now. But the temptation is to say this just shows you the tank is obsolete. Mm. Um, you know, it can't stand up to javelin anti tank missiles, which are which are genuinely effective. It can't stand up to TB2 drones, which have shown their worth not just in Ukraine, but also, as you know, Arthur, in, in Libya, Syria, yeah. Nagorno Karabakh, all of these other battlefields. And I think the difficulty in, in reaching that conclusion is that Russia has made it hard for us to draw lessons because they haven't used their military equipment in the way it's supposed to be used. Right. I mean, many of you will have seen these videos of uh, Russian tanks in Brovary, which is a suburb of Kiev, the eastern suburb of Kiev. Yeah. These densely packed columns driving in. There's no artillery support to the rear. There's no reconnaissance units going ahead, checking the road. There's no infantry dismounting and going off to the side, flushing out these yeah. Ukrainian squads in the woodland. Um, this is the essence of what of what military uh, uh, organizations called combined arms warfare. Yes. Right. The idea that a tank is very big, it's strong, it's got a massive gun, but it can't go into a building. You need infantry for that. Each arm of the military has to support the other. This is what Blitzkrieg in, in May 1940 was all about. Yeah. Air power, tanks, infantry working in synchrony. The Russians haven't done it. And so I'm so wary of any conclusion that says, Drones are incredibly effective and will devastate any armed force or tanks are useless and you may as well get rid of them because, you know, these lessons are contingent and the Russians have, have, have not used this stuff properly. Yeah, fascinating. You touched there on President Macron and I think that, that takes us into a huge area of debate, which is really at this strategic level. I think there's been a certain amount of misrepresentation in the English language media, but there is still clearly a difference of approach, if, if not necessarily of view, in terms of what people use the term off-ramps there might be, but effectively the question mm. of how this war comes to an end. But there is definitely a discomfort in certain spaces, and, and we see it, you know, the New York Times editorial board. So it's not just about Western Europe. We've seen it from Henry Kissinger. There are various people who are perhaps looking at this and saying, well, if it's grinding to a stalemate, do we really want to be doing this for years and years? Or should we actually be forcing some kind of off-ramp? Well, what's your take on that debate? And what, firstly, I suppose, what, you know, what, who are the different players in that debate? And secondly, is is this a serious debate? Or is it just you know the sort of churn of of war, the the fog of war. This question is 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 a really fascinating one. It's my sense is that the issue we're having between France and the sort of hawkish camp, right, which you would you would call the UK, the Baltic states, Poland. It certainly isn't just the Anglo the Anglo's. You know, definitely the Eastern Europe is is considerably more 
uh, pissed off at Macron than 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 the UK, than anyone in the UK is. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's not about the French and the Germans or the Italians pushing for an early ceasefire, uh, although the legacy of, as you know, Arthur, the, the 2008 Georgia war and more importantly, the 2014-15 fighting with Russia in Ukraine, which culminated in the Minsk agreements negotiated by France and Germany. I think it was by Merkel and Sarkozy at the time. Uh, that, that leaves a sort of bad taste in Eastern Europe's mouth. They thought the, the they thought France and Germany froze these conflicts, locked in Russian territorial gains, and effectively gave a poison pill to Ukraine. So that casts a shadow over the current moment. But I think the diplomatic differences today are not so much that that, that Macron or, or, or the Italians are pushing to say, you must stop fighting now. I think it's a bit more subtle. I think it's different visions of the long-term future with Russia. Uh, the sort of question of, can we ever have any serious dialogue with Russia under the Putin regime again, or is it a lost cause? And on that question, I think the French still think, ultimately, these are our neighbours, you know, we have to live with them, Putin may not go for a long time, and who the people who follow him may be worse, uh, and we still have to discuss other things, like terrorism in the Sahel, we have other challenges and threats, whereas the view in Eastern Europe, and to some extent the view in the UK, I think, is, is that um, uh, ultimately, this is beyond salvation. We have to completely isolate him. We have to stop worrying so much about humiliation. I think that's the bigger difference here. But I think on a basic question, there's broad agreement, which is, you know, when I hear NATO, when uh, I hear Stoltenberg, when I hear Macron, when I hear Boris Johnson, lots of others, I think the consensus that's developing is this is ultimately, everyone understands at some point negotiations will have to restart, at some point, you know, whenever that is. Ukraine has to be in the best possible position for that. And for that to happen, it'll ultimately depend on the battlefield and the weapons we give them. So so everyone sort of agrees that, that the aim is to put Ukraine in the strongest possible position. There's just, I think, different degrees of optimism and pessimism over, over sort of how far that can go, how much can be done, the cost of that to Europe. My own personal view is that, um, you know, we, we, we just... We, if we do find a Russia that effectively occupied Donbass, it's not going to sit back and say, OK, we'll sign a deal and stop there. I do think they'll come back for another bite of the apple in Odessa, perhaps in Kiev in five or six years. And really, we haven't got a choice as Europeans. We just have to arm Ukraine to the teeth, even if that drains our arsenals, even if that means means expanding our defence spending. The alternative is doing it all in 10 years time. That, that's my own view. But but I know, you know there's a range of quite reasonable dissenting positions on that as well. Yeah, Um I suppose then that it's important that we talk a bit about that sort of war economy idea. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen is an escalation of the types of weapons that we are sending the Ukrainians. Um, there are various reasons for that, not the least of it, that at the beginning, no one thought that they would still be fighting in, in mid-June. Um, but no. it, it's fair to say, I think, that if anybody had suggested in February, that we'd be sending these sort of medium-range rockets to Ukraine, uh, that you know you'd, you'd be regarded as as a fairly sort of crazy person. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. So, I think there's two questions. Uh, one is: Is there a class of weaponry that we can give to the Ukrainians that could really shift the balance, but risks um, you know a wider escalation? And then it would be interesting to talk about that. Or is this actually more about that? war economy idea that we would just we just need to get producing much bigger quantities of these weapons because effectively there's a big war on and, and we haven't planned for it. I think there's we're reaching the the 
the peak of what we're able to provide, um, not in terms of quantity, but in terms of class of weaponry. Yeah. The HIMARS launchers that America's providing and the and the MLRS, the multiple launch rocket systems that are a co- sort of comparable systems that yeah. the UK, as well as I think Germany is sending, these are, these are incredibly sophisticated systems. Uh, and on the French side, you know, they're sending Caesars, which are self-propelled artillery, which means you can fire them and move very quickly before the other side can spot where you fired from. Yeah. Uh, and they're the longest range artillery systems in so far. Mm. But if you think about the rocket ones, they have a range of perhaps 70, 80 kilometers. That's about three, four times further than the uh, howitzers the Americans were sending a month ago. Yeah. So this is this is this is astonishing systems. Um, the problem we have is twofold. One of them is quantities. To, to give you a sense of it, um, I looked up the Caesar numbers. If the French end up sending 12 Caesar launchers, that's going to be approaching a fifth of their inventory. Yeah. And that's that's you know that's comparable to the num- problems that we in the UK would face. I, I don't need to remind people about the fact the British Army is not exactly swimming in kit no. at, at, at this moment, and nor indeed nor is any European army, yeah. to be absolutely honest. Um, and so we're sort of eating into our own stocks. And the other problem is, let's just say we were willing to pony up the money to, to, to continue producing weapons for Ukraine. The timeline for some of these things is incredibly long, right? Yeah. So I'm just looking up looking up the figures on this because I I think it's a really cautionary tale. You look at the javelins, right, which are these anti-tank missiles. The factory in Alabama that makes them produces about 2,100 of them a year. The Americans, by early May, had given around 7,000 javelins to Ukraine. Some people think that was about a third of the US Army's stock. Yeah. So it's going to take, three or four years to replace those lost units for the American army. And all of this is happening, Arthur, of course, at the same time as European countries are thinking, you know, bloody hell, we better rearm because the Russians, are, look what the Russians have done. So you have other countries who also want this stuff. It's not yeah. just the Ukrainians who are rearming. Germans are spending 100 billion euros extra. The Swedes are moving to 2%. The Poles are moving to 3%. Mm. Everyone is, you know, rearming like crazy. So this is a defense industrial problem as much as it is a how much are we willing to pay problem. Yeah. And is it the same for the Russians? Obviously, they, they make their own weapons, largely. Uh, they have a lot of natural resources, but clearly they are under severe sanctions. So are they going to face similar challenges? I think absolutely, yeah. And we should always, it's, it's, it's really important because we always have this tendency to think, oh my God, we're, you know, we're screwed, inflation, yeah. can't produce this stuff. But of course, the, the, the Russians have it pretty bad as well, right? Mm. They've, they've lost, as I said, 700 tanks. They've lost uh, 15 probably 15,000 men. Um, And we're seeing this particularly in the realm of weapons that need high-end components, because those are the things that have hit them very badly indeed. And of course, as as you know, pretty much anything these days is basically a computer with other stuff around it, right? Microchips are in everything, absolutely everything. Um, There were some great stories from people opening up Russian missiles that have landed in Ukraine, and you're finding massive amounts of components from the United States, huge, huge numbers. missile after missile. They're, the Russians, I am told, are running low on precision-guided munitions. They probably have kept some aside because any responsible army would have to keep some aside in case of a confrontation with NATO. You're not mm. going to run down all your stocks. But they're clearly running 
low. And they are, I think, struggling to rebuild these things. Um, there are some, some stories about tank production having slowed down or stopped. I haven't been able to completely verify those stories, so I, I, I don't want to endorse them too strongly. Yeah. But I think it is absolutely right the Russians are going to struggle. They're going to have to dip into stocks, but who knows how they've maintained these things, right? We've seen how corruption... Uh, has already affected poor maintenance on lots of their systems. Um, you can pull out these tanks you've kept in a warehouse in Siberia since 1965. But, you know, God knows if the things have been looked after and if they're in any position to be used. Yeah. All of this points to uh, the possibility, which gets discussed periodically, about whether there might be a risk of escalation. Um, on the one hand, you could make the argument that, well, the, the Russians have clearly bitten off more they can chew in Ukraine. On the other hand, if they're stuck in Ukraine, maybe it does make sense for them to to try to do something somewhere else. What's your view on that bit of the, the equation? I don't think they have any capacity to do anything serious anywhere else. Um, there's two things here, aren't there? Um, there's sort of conventional military challenges, and you could talk about Finland, Sweden, talk about the Black Sea. You could talk about um, you know troublemaking elsewhere in the Balkans. But they don't have any capacity for this. They are scraping together manpower for Donbass. Um, they've just lost huge amounts of military potential. There's just no 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 ability to do that. So then we're really talking here about indirect troublemaking, aren't we? We're talking about um, the, the usual gamut of things, is cyber capabilities, yeah. use of intelligence and, and proxy forces to mm. um, subvert things in Europe. You know, in the past, we've obviously, we all know the list of blowing up ammunition depots in Bulgaria. Um, and then proxies, even like Wagner Group, which yes. have been active in Mali, Central African Republic. But Wagner, of course, has also been active in Donbass. It's been used in the latest offensive in Severodonetsk. I should say, sorry, at this point, for, the, for those less in the weeds, Wagner being the private military company that's very close to the Kremlin. Yes. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what kind of escalation are we talking about here? Um, you know, even in Europe, as we know, we've seen historic expulsions of Russian intelligence officers, undeclared Russian intelligence officers from across Europe, the, the biggest expulsions in history, um, which have which have very surely affected their capacity to undertake these kinds of subversive actions in Europe, if, if not prevented it entirely. Uh, so overall, I think they have enough to be concentrating on. They have enough to be worried about. Ukraine is very much their focus at this point in time. Yeah. The one thing the Russians do seem to have succeeded in, and, and we actually we had an episode of this podcast uh, looking at this, is their their war of information as it pertains to what we might call the global south, as or you know the sort of formerly non-aligned countries. So most notably India, Brazil, but also a, a lot of a lot of countries in Africa and China to some extent have not you know seen this as a clear cut case of an aggressor in invading a sovereign territory uh that there is a lot of readiness to see the russian view of events that they were forced their hand was forced by um nato aggression interestingly the pope obviously from argentina originally uh came out and said that the other day um so you know the the debate that might feel as though the debate is over in Europe and and even in North America largely it's not over in the places where most people live on planet earth is it 
Not at all. And and, and uh, obviously, I saw you put out a, a podcast on this subject just mm. the other day. Um, I mean, I, I, I was in Washington a, a couple of weeks ago, and I heard a story from a, uh, someone in Bidenland talking about ASEAN leaders yeah. coming to talk to American leaders and, and the sort of conversation proceeding. And then late into the evening, ASEAN leaders slowly beginning to ask uh, their counterparts, why have you been conducting false flag attacks in Ukraine? Why have you had biological weapons laboratories in Ukraine? Wow. <laughs> These were not fringe corners of the internet, you no. know, sort of some some random bot or some lunatic. These were these were ASEAN leaders, wow. ASEAN, you know, the Ten Nation Club yeah. in, in, in Southeast Asia, countries like Indonesia, yeah. you know, big, important swing states in, in the world with, with, with huge populations. I just think to me that encapsulated the problem that we have, which is that um, we really have are not winning the information war. The narrative is very much less, uh, you know, less tilted against Russia than we might like to think. Um, and even on important questions like the food crisis, it, Russia, I think, I really worry, has persuaded lots of the world that the, the, the reason for the grain shortage and famine and hunger is as much to do with Western sanctions as it is to do with the fact of an invasion, which is just factually wrong. But but I think you'll find a lot of people in India, China, South Africa, Mexico, these sort of countries believe it. I'm really not sure what we can do about it. I mean, I'm, I, I, I sort of slightly despair at this. I don't know if you've seen any particularly compelling ways this can be, this can be countered, but it does, affect our, it does affect our diplomacy. Yeah, well, I, I, if I had a magic solution, I, I would certainly share it, and, and I don't. But I mean, one thing that we, we don't do um, is we, we don't invest serious resource in sort of information response, things like the BBC World Service, which is is constantly having its budget shrunk and those sorts of things. Um, it seems arguable that, you know, I'm not going to suggest that that would overnight turn the tide, but those credible platforms that do exist to promote factual, you know, this is not about sort of agitprop, but, you, but factual mm. um, information that, that is accessible globally, uh, they haven't necessarily been been well invested in, have they? The opposite, right? They've been they've been cut. They've right. been they've been uh, pruned down. Um, but I think that's partly it. It's it's our own self unforced errors in terms of diminishing our soft power and and means of reporting, you know, good honest information. It's also it's also I think something bigger, which is the the global south doesn't. It doesn't take its news from those sources so in such a dominant way, not yeah. just because we've not invested in them, although that's a problem. It's because there's a kind of cultural confidence in these parts of the world, isn't there? Yes. Um, I noticed Chinese state media was present in, was embedded with some forces in, in Russia, in Ukraine. That's a new thing. You didn't have Chinese state media embedded in Russia with Russian battalions in the Georgia war, did you, as far as I'm aware? Um, it's a function of China's independently growing power in that way. And I don't know this, but I mean, at what stage do people in Latin America start getting their news from, um, you know, CGTN rather than the BBC World Service? Yeah. Maybe that sh I'm sure that share has already been changing. It's not just China, though, is it? I look at, you know, India is a country I know reasonably well. Indian um, anchors are 
going around the world and reporting on conflicts in ways they wouldn't have done 20 years ago because they didn't have the budget, they didn't have the sort of um, the, the sizable middle class with the interest in that reporting. Yeah. And they will be reporting their very different perspectives on this war, which are fundamentally more sympathetic to the Russian perspective of an expansionist, aggressive NATO, of uh, a sort of, you know, what happened in Mariupol being no different to what happened in Fallujah. Yeah. Uh, all of these these tropes that we, we know and understand and we've seen. Um, so it's about, this is a function of multipolarity. Of, the, of sort of the global south acquiring its own voice, its own its own narrative, and having the means to broadcast that and to report on it. So I think I think this is a longer term issue we need to watch very closely. Yeah. So uh, f- my sort of final question on on this Ukraine discussion is a very unfair one, but uh, you know I'd be still interested in your views. Which is what are the chances that the Western alliance can't hold together in the face of a very, very challenging economic picture towards the end of the year? Because that's basically Putin's gamble. So is is he going to, is it going to pay off for him? I think the Western alliance will hold together. I think that we have enough cohesion in there to last us. Uh, and I think that Western leaders understand the stakes. What I am more worried about than the end of the year is the prognosis going into 2024 and the American elections. Uh, So in other words, a sort of even longer term problem, which is I think we can get through 2023, we can exhaust the Russians, we can put enormous pressure on them. What I worry about is if Biden's position looks shaky, if the sort of spectre of Trump returns, you don't actually have to have a Trump victory or a Trump-like victory in 2024 to dissolve that coalition, if it looks like it's going to happen, that that in itself could be highly corrosive to European resolve in, you know, in the middle of next year as yeah. the campaigning season in the US revs up. That's my much bigger concern. But if we can avoid that, if we can keep that in check, I remain optimistic that, you know, Russia's structural deeper problems uh, will also work against it um, uh, and that we can just about hold here. And of course, even in the UK, you know, I let me be clear, I, I, I'm as a, no paper I think has been more critical than The Economist to Boris Johnson and his government. Mm. I do give relatively high marks to this government for Ukraine. I think they've yep. done impressively and they were, they were early and done well. Um, but I, it is also important to notice, to, to note, I, I think we have a consensus in this country. And actually, I think a late or the Labour government, different governments, different alternative leaderships within the Conservative Party would probably also maintain quite a high yeah. degree of support for Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, I think these things have got a certain degree of continuity built in now here and in other parts of Europe. Well, Shashank, um, this has been a really wide-ranging discussion. Fascinating. I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us here on Doomsday Watch. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed it. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.